the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoy, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There's never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Go to LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. Coming up, Tommy Schultz on school choice and why it's more important than ever. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. So school choice to me seems like a no-brainer. I think there are still a lot of reluctant folks out there who wonder what that means for public schools. This is a topic I love to talk about, and who better to discuss it with than Tommy Schultz, who is big into this. He is the CEO of the American Federation for Children. Tommy, it's great to see you, and especially on the heels of what just happened in Arizona. So, I'm going to leave it to you to give us the quick description of what their school choice legislation means. Sure. Yeah. Arizona just, I mean, cut through the jungle in a way that no other state has done before. Um, Really almost this kind of Sputnik moment, I think, in education going forward to where a lot of other states are going to suddenly go, oh, wait a minute, we need to get our act together. We need to do what Arizona is doing And essentially what Arizona did is they gave every single family in their state school choice. Uh, Probably what we should do is take a step back to say, what is school choice, right? And why is this even a topic of conversation nowadays? And so you have to almost back up into the mid-1800s when we really adopted the current system of public education that we have right now, which we adopted from Prussia. We just copied and pasted essentially to gear up for the Industrial Revolution geared up for the wartime that we uh, got into within World War I, World War II, which says we kind of need to produce an orderly factory worker style education system. And you still see remnants of that today in many of our classrooms, right? They're nice and neat rows and desks. You have the bells and whistles that go off for break times and uh, switching, which really didn't make sense if you actually thought about how did we educate everybody up until that point in time? So we've kind of kept that system on autopilot. And then in the 90s, essentially, a number of states started to really wrestle with this concept of saying, what if we allowed families to go to the school of their choice, rather than saying this arbitrary red line around your home, you you know, your district, your zip code? Why are we letting that define that when we could say, hey, parents, let's let you control this. So the first school voucher program in 1991 comes in Milwaukee, Then charter schools got started in Minnesota, where I believe you're from, Michelle. Um, And so all of a sudden, after 30 years, there's been this constant and slow moving expansion of these educational options. But all of a sudden, when COVID hit, when schools shut down, right, parents really got a look under the hood of the broader public education system. And a lot of parents started going, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. So over the past year, there's been the largest expansion in history of educational options for families fully funded from the state, which essentially it says, we need to fund students rather than systems. We're going to take your tax dollars that we're already educating to your child, which- yeah. And, and when app- you say fully funded by- Oh, go ahead. I lost your audio there for a moment. <laughs> go ahead. No, that, that's I, essentially- okay. So let me just, when you're saying fully funded by the state, you're saying the, the individual one of 50 states. You're not saying the federal state, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah, so- our states, in, on average in this country, we're spending about $15,424 per student in public schools. And what we're saying to do with school choice, in which we passed in more than 30 states now in this country, is that we're allowing families to control 
basically the state portion of their education funding. You can't really touch federal funding, can't really touch the local funding, but you can touch the state funding with state laws. And that's what Arizona did, which is essentially is giving families roughly $7,000 to fully control for their child's education. So they could spend that on public or private school tuition. They could spend it on homeschooling expenses. All 1.1 million students in Arizona now have this option. And you can imagine, Michelle, I mean, it's the, the parental interest in this is going gangbusters. They're finally saying, wait a minute, we get to kind of override the school board. We get to fully be in control of our education funding. That's what's just so amazing about what Arizona did. And I'm hopeful that many, many more states really follow suit here in the coming year. The only reason I want to get a little in the weeds on this Arizona thing is that I have a good friend out there who is not happy about this passage of legislation. According to her, again, this is just from our casual conversations, this school choice law was put before the voters twice and twice voted down. My my feeling from her is that it was voted down because they were concerned about this money coming away from the public school system. And it would leave a lot of kids still in public school with less funding while, as it was put to me, the rich kids get another $7,000 to put toward their private tuition. What what happened? Why was the legislature able to pass this when, I guess, the voters weren't overwhelmingly in favor of it? So, yeah, your friend is referring to a couple of years ago, there was um, a law that there was a current, uh, there was a school choice program already on the books in Arizona serving about 11,000 students, a really uh, limited pool and defined pool of who could even be eligible at that point. Basically, students with special needs or who had been zoned to a certain kind of uh, low-ranked school, you know, D or F-ranked school, kind of a really clunky mix that was actually hard for families to sort of understand, am I eligible? Can I even get access to this? So a few years ago, the legislature expanded it to basically include mostly lower income families as part of this bigger expansion. And Arizona has not to get too boring and really in the weeds, but you wanted to get into it. So <laughs> I did. Arizona, I did. <laughs> Arizona has this interesting system, as do, do most Western states, about ballot referendums. So voters can take a law or something to the ballot that then voters can then vote on in November. And so Arizona passes this big expansion then voters, or well, rather, a series of interest groups, mostly funded by the teachers unions and some of these other groups said, wait a minute, this could be a death knell to public education. And they pushed all the talking points that it seems like your friend got, which is that this is going to rob us. This will only pay for rich kids, which, again, right. it's already limited to you know a means tested lower income population. And it's already limited to this certain you know special needs categories that could be even eligible. But look, to gather these signatures... The, the teachers unions, the folks that were really trying to gather these signatures to get this onto the ballot, you know, they're not really limited to the truth in, the, in that regard. So right. this goes to the ballot. And uh, again, to get really weirdly technical, uh, ballot referendums have two different options, right? It's either yes or no. So yes, the expansion uh, stays in place or no, it gets struck down. As you could imagine, too, when this is presented on the ballot, it's not a clean thing that says, hey, Michelle, you and your kids could be eligible for this education savings account. <laughs> it's this long winded technical argument about defunding via taxpayer dollars, this mechanism that does X, Y and Z. So like with most ballot propositions across the country, it's just pretty statistical. If you get the no position, you're just basically going to win. So the other side gets the no position. It's a technical, weird wording. And even another weird variant of this law was such that in Arizona, they have this thing called the Voter Protection Act, which essentially says if something wins at the referendum level. So if the school choice expansion at that time won, it's essentially permanent. You can't even make a single technical change to it. Arizona just has this weird clunky thing that says you can never, even with new legislation, reform a law that was protected under a ballot referendum. So all which is to say, oh, we geez. didn't even support via our organization that ballot referendum because we knew that, well, wait a minute, there may be some technical fixes. You know, you don't want to create a permanent education law like we did in most of the country back in the 1850s, as I referenced right. earlier. So that's probably what your friend is referring to. And all of the arguments against school choice have basically been the same since 1990. 
no matter how many states disproved it, no matter how much research comes out showing that this is helping public uh, public schools, this is helping uh, overall the system of education funding following the student, families are more satisfied. All this research that comes out every single year showing the benefits of school choice, our opponents, they don't really care about that. They want to continue to lie about it. It's yeah, it doesn't surprise me, actually. And that's kind of the answer I expected to get from you. It seems, again, that teachers unions are are really the anti-school choice folks. They've got their system. They like it, I suppose. You know, I'm, I'm unclear on a couple things about teachers unions, and maybe you can clear it up for me. You've got national teachers unions. You've got state teachers unions. Why are they so glued in to their position? Is it strictly about job security? What is it about? It's about power and control, quite simply. So, uh, Michelle, if you had to guess, um, you know, we are the largest uh, school choice advocacy organization in the country. We bring in about, you know, on track to do about 25 million this year in terms of contributions. How much do you think the teachers unions, the two national teachers unions bring in? And I mean, don't give a wildly ridiculous answer. What's your real realistic guess? If a uh, hundred million, hundred million. Well, you were close, but it was three billion last year. <gasps> so oh my gosh! When I, <laughs> That's when I, astonishing to me. No, but everybody that I ask this question generally guesses like you do. Ah, maybe a couple hundred million. That three billion basically represents. They are pulling out roughly a thousand dollars from the three million public education employees, which doesn't just uh, only include teachers, right? They're also organizing graduate students. They're organizing garden variety school employees at all levels. So they're bringing out on average around $1,000 per individual there, which is always why you see them push new laws saying we need to hire new administrators. We need to bring in X, Y, and Z new positions into the school system. It's why over the past you know, 20 years, you've seen this 88% increase in administrative staff across all our school systems, whereas we've only grown in terms of students 8% or in teachers 8%, right? right? So again, it's about power and control. Like you said, they like this system because they're bringing in so much money. They're deploying this across the whole political spectrum by electing lawmakers who they then sit across the table and negotiate collective bargaining contracts with. Right. So it's this racket of a cartel, essentially. And I mean, in the most uh, pure definition of those words, what they're running here is fundamentally against families. It's fundamentally about the best interests of students and even the best interest of teachers. So to your friend in Arizona that brought up the point about, well, this might hurt public schools or whatever. Think if you're a public school teacher, and I think any one of your listeners who is a public school teacher, the average attrition rate of a public school teacher is basically four years, which is roughly the same as an NFL player, right, Michelle? Yeah. And then yeah. you throw in, oh, every public school teacher who's told, well, if you want to make more money, you have to go into administration, which most public school teachers might say, well, I'd rather be in front of the classroom with the kids. That's why I got into this. In a system of school choice, you could have now a great public school teacher in Arizona go, wait, I could start a school with maybe 10 to 20 kids in my neighborhood, and I could be bringing in roughly $140,000 in revenue. What are we talking about here, right? So that's where all these, like, the lies of the teachers unions, they don't want to tell the great public school teachers that, well, if we had a choice system, you could actually educate fewer people, you can get paid more. They don't want to tell them that, right? (laughs) Right, right. Of course, it's... It's troublesome. And I think what part of the trouble comes from for most people is you look at teachers and we love our teachers. And as you said, boy, the attrition rate. And and, and I see it in, in private schools and public schools around my neighborhoods, the, the teachers that leave. And and so we want to think the very best of our teachers and the best of, our, you know, and so that that name teacher, it's just got this halo around it. Right. And so they couldn't possibly be part of something that was was ill-conceived or based on control and money and all these union stuff. And so I think there's this image, but during COVID, as you said, we got a glimpse behind the curtain of what goes on in some of these school boards, school districts, and parents didn't like what they saw. We're going to talk more with Tommy Schultz. Uh, Again, there's so much going on with school choice right now. And it's, to me, it's invigorating. It's exciting. And I think to a lot of people, it's a little scary, but we're going to touch on more right after this. 
So I did not know that 85% of the grass-fed beef that you see online and in the stores, 85% of it is from overseas. It's imported. Now, why would we buy that? Why wouldn't we support ranchers and farmers right here in America? Well, I do. And I do it through Good Ranchers. Good Ranchers delivers 100% American meat, and it comes right to your door, which is great. You just throw it in your freezer. They guarantee you that the meat is born, raised, and harvested right here in the United States so that you know where it comes from and you know who you're supporting. You're already buying meat, so why not buy it in a way that strengthens the American farm? Supporting American causes can feel great, and with Good Ranchers, it also tastes really good. Sometimes it's tough to get everyone to the table, but with Good Ranchers, everything comes individually wrapped, so it's easy to just to pull out one steak and cook it for yourself or split it with someone. Some of them are seasoned, and you can cook it however you want. Throw it in the skillet, throw it on the grill, bake it in the oven. It always tastes great. It's not like one delivery is great and the next one isn't. Every box is superior in quality, flavor, and value. Good Ranchers is a company that supports American agriculture and business. And they support us and what we do do here on Sideline Sanity. So I love to support those who support us. Make sure you use my code TAFOYA, T-A-F-O-Y-A, to get $30 off your order plus get free express shipping. That's, that's a great value. You can make gatherings at the table common again with Good Ranchers. Take advantage of this offer before it's gone. Go to goodranchers.com slash TAFOYA, T-A-F-O-Y-A, to start bringing people to the table and bringing great food to the table from Good Ranchers American Meat Delivered. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Back with Tommy Schultz. Supreme Court, the First Amendment bans states from excluding religious schools from school choice programs. This was one of those really interesting decisions in this term of the Supreme Court, Tommy. What does it mean? Yeah, so taking a step back again to almost the founding of our country and where just how wild and wacky the education history is of this country. The very first, you know, like compulsory education law in this country was in 1647 in Massachusetts, I believe, and it was called the Old Deluder Satan Act, right? Because essentially what they didn't want was when they, we had these, this new colony system coming over from uh, Europe, we didn't want to have our children kind of rambling about, we need to keep them in these public schools and in these kind of public school dynamics that were growing at the beginning of the revolution, it was really a pretty religious heavy institution. And then fast forward about a hundred years, and this is where the Supreme Court case um, this past month really comes into play. About a hundred years later, most of the public schools were kind of a Protestant style public school. Uh, You know, they're reading the Bible, they're teaching, you know, they're doing even bits of theology, there's prayer in school, you name it. But all of a sudden, you had this wave of Catholic immigration coming into the country. And that really upset kind of the Protestant balance because these uh, essentially Italians and Irish uh, kind of immigrants were saying, I want to go to a Catholic school, which was a private school at the time. We want to get state funding for this because we're paying all this in education uh, taxes and whatnot. And so there was this movement afoot in the mid uh, 19th century. Um, led by a guy named James G. Blaine at the federal level to push a national federal constitutional amendment that would have said no public dollars can go to private schools. But at that time, it's, you know, the the very different kind of definition of what we think about a private versus public, whereas back then it was meaning we don't want the money going to Catholic schools. So that fails at the federal level, comes really close. 
30 plus states actually implement their own form of what is called a Blaine Amendment at the federal level or at the state level, rather. And essentially, as you know, fast forward another 100 years or so, as we really kind of made public schools completely uh, devoid of any sort of religious overtones, at least in the kind of traditional sense, you know, essentially these Blaine Amendments still stuck around. And then once we start passing all these school choice laws in the 90s, the teachers unions then go, wait a minute, let's use this as a way to block school choice because the way that it's written in most of these constitutions says no public dollar to private schools. Again, a very different meaning than what it was before. But essentially the Supreme Court then comes in in 2002. It's called the Zellman ruling, which said the Ohio school voucher program, I mean, it, it doesn't violate this sense of church and state separation, which isn't even in the constitution, but the the private money for the voucher program in Ohio was going to the parents. If the parent so chooses a private school, that's no different than like, Michelle, if you're getting a social security or your parents are getting a social security benefit and they choose to take that money to a private or religious, you know, uh, store or something to spend it in the same way with Medicare or Medicaid, they're not restricting you from going to a religious hospital, right. To get your medical services, same concept. So then a couple decades later, I think in 2017, another Supreme Court ruling comes up in this kind of wacky scenario where a local like preschool was wanting to use this government program uh, to essentially use recycled truck tire truck tires for playground equipment. But it was a Lutheran school and the state said, no, no, no. Our Blaine Amendment says that no public benefits can go to these private religious schools. The Supreme Court's like, again, this is a ridiculous notion. What, you know, it's actually it's violating the First Amendment free exercise clause that you're actively discriminating against religious groups for uh, any number of reasons. So this court case dealt with a, a weirder quirk that came from that, which essentially said in Maine, uh, Maine and Vermont have these old school kind of town tuitioning programs where because it's such they're such rural states, they have this dynamic where they don't even have a public school sometimes in your local jurisdiction. So they will pay for you to go to a private school if there's one closer to you. And essentially, Maine tried to make this ridiculous argument that says, well, we're not discriminating against private religious schools. We're just we're just saying that this money could be used for religious instruction. So they made this like distinction between the status of the school versus the use of the dollars. And again, the Supreme Court kind of in a triple crown ruling said this is ridiculous. No school choice program, no kind of uh, new law coming out can say you can discriminate against religious schools because actually, Michelle, think about across the country. A lot of states have universal pre-K programs, which says Mm -hmm. you can take your dollars to any sort of institution, public, private, you name it. But again, this weird quirk of power and control of the teachers unions and the powers that be within our public education system suddenly say, well, from five to 18 years old, we can't have that, right? We can't have these universal programs. But then you get to the higher ed level. We have Pell Grants. We have the GI Bill. We have all sorts of kind of federal and or state funded scholarship programs for higher education and college. But again, this goes to the political nature of everything. And we're so glad that the Supreme Court finally put a real nail in the coffin of this really old quirk from the, you know, mid 1800s that was initially just trying to stop Catholics from getting kind of access to education funding. <laughs> it's it's really, you know, the law gets so twisted and and difficult for some people to really get their heads around and so it, it's it's interesting. I I I I guess I'd rather see less of it than more of it and that's right. maybe what we had here. So I think my last question for you after this quick break is going to be do you ever see the teachers unions losing power. I I think it's a big question. My mom was part of the teachers union. I'll tell you what she thinks and (laughs) we'll do that right after this. Sounds great. Well, if you look back at November of last year, (laughs) since then the stock market has plummeted, but you know, what's been on the rise gold. Gas prices are insane. The stock market is so volatile, it's crazy to watch. Inflation is worse than it was a year ago. And we have this war going on between Russia and Ukraine that we hope doesn't spread any further. And the bottom line is that the markets, they don't like instability. But the good news is 
you have options. Gold prices are rising as investors turn to gold for protection. Gold provides a hedge against inflation and protects against a weakening dollar. Legacy Precious Metals is the only company I trust for investing in gold and silver. You need an investment that's going to protect your wealth and your retirement. And you want to call Legacy Precious Metals today. Be proactive while there's still enough time to do that. Because remember 2008, those who invested in gold saw huge gains while others they simply lost their retirements. Legacy Precious Metals can advise you on all of your options for investing in gold and silver. You've got nothing to lose by calling them. Just have them answer your questions. You can speak to an IRA expert at Legacy Precious Metals. Here's the number, 866-528-1903. 866-528-1903. Or download their free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. Back with Tommy Schultz, the CEO of the American Federation for Children. We are talking about school choice. My mom was a school teacher, a public school teacher. I say this a lot because growing up, it was all about public schools in my life and all the way through undergrad. The first private school I ever went to was for grad school. I went to the University of Southern California. My husband never went to a private school all the way through college. And we assumed we would raise our kids through the public school system. I remember touring around some of the schools in our neighborhood and thinking, where are we going to send our children? We had a couple choices, not, not a ton, but a couple. And I remember this one school saying, well, we have art for now and we have music for now. And I remember thinking to myself, budget cuts, budget cuts, budget cuts, what's going to be left? So we ended up choosing a private school. We were in the position where we could do that. I'm not certain that was that we, we still chose super wisely for our kids, but they're happy. They're getting a great education. The question for me is now, as my mom, part of the unions and not happy about it, right? And the California Teachers Union is where I grew up in California. Gotcha. Are these unions ever going away? Is there ever going to be a time where we've just got a bunch of really great options. I assume there will always be public schools. I don't know. You, what is your vision? Well, I think to your the first part of your question, which is, you know, what happens to the teachers unions in the future, right? Uh, I think by and large, the states that really push pedal to the metal on school choice, you're going to start to see a shift in the kind of power dynamics of teachers unions versus teachers, right? You're going to see a lot more teachers going, wait a minute, why am I paying all this money, you know, a thousand bucks a year, basically on average into this union? And what are they fighting for? Right. I'm not necessarily getting a pay raise, even though they keep telling me they're getting more money for our schools. I'm not seeing it. And you actually see the unions use this as part of a strategy, right? They will talk about budget cuts. They will talk about uh, teachers are raising their own money for classroom supplies. Exactly. And, you hear that all right? the time. Yes. And it's even more kind of uh, outrageous when you hear about that, as even in you know recent months, I saw the head of the, one of the national teachers unions posting about this. And it's like, wait a minute, let's just even just a quick bit of math here. The federal government during COVID sent $192 billion to the states to spend on K through 12 education, right? Which, Michelle, that's enough for basically every single kid in America, rich or poor, middle class, that's essentially enough to give every single kid a $3,300 check, right? So when you're hearing from the teachers unions that all of a sudden, like, oh, our schools are chronically underfunded right now, actually, the exact opposite is what's happening, which is every one of these school districts, state education agencies, they're all saying, we don't even know how to spend this much money. We have so much that we're just awash with. Because that $192 billion that got sent to them was on top of the total amount we spend on public education, which is roughly $750 billion per year. Again, going back to that statistic of $15,000 per kid. So if you're a teacher and you're feeling like, gosh, I'm penny pinching or I don't have enough resources, you should do the math around your classroom and go, wait, how many kids are in this classroom? I know how much is getting funded per pupil. You should ask, where is the money going? Yeah. And again, that goes back to the, the notion that we talked a bit about earlier, which there is so much administrative bluff going on. There's so much that's just getting stuck in the system that's never making it to the classroom teacher. Whereas in a system of school choice where parents can fully control their education dollars for their kids, 
they can say, nope, we're going to hire and get the best teachers into our dynamic, our new private school that we maybe want to build, our new homeschool dynamic. That's just kind of the difference there. So your second question, I believe, which is just broadly about the overall funding and what happens you know, in the future, I think as you look to states like Florida, for instance, which has been on the leading edge of school choice, by and large, their teachers union is pretty weak and ineffective in that they really don't hold the sway that they used to, right? Because they're not controlling every bit of funding. Florida, there's roughly, oh gosh, I think it's north of 500,000 students either going to a private school with a scholarship or to a charter school free of charge. And all of a sudden, when parents are in this free system of choosing, they're empowered to make better choices, unlike what you and your husband were kind of looking at, which says, well, we either got to move to the better school district or we've got to figure out a way to pay private school tuition Whereas, again, you've paid so much in taxpayer dollars, you know, throughout your, the course of your lifetime. <laughs> yeah. You and the teachers and everybody should be going, where is this money going? And again, $750 billion a year. That's as much as we're spending at the Defense Department each year for our military. It's just out, outrageous numbers. But ultimately going forward, I think as more and more states really step on the gas and push this educational freedom model that Arizona just really took to the limit, uh, you're going to see a lot more, a better system, a better functioning education system that actually rewards the great teachers, that reduces kind of that administrative bloat. Like, I think the increase in, you know, the amount of principals and assistant principals over the years since, the you know, 2000 is like 37%. It's like, why? When only our student population is growing by 8%. It doesn't make any sense. It really is quite something. And I think, again, when you want to confuse voters and parents and constituents, what do you do? You just add layer upon layer of, of, of red tape or whatever you want to call it of uh, policy. And it's becomes too overwhelming to pick through. And so you just kind of throw up your hands and go, okay, you guys are the professionals, you do it. And then yeah. you sort of find out, Whoa, wait a minute. What are, what are they actually doing with all of this? So it's, it's, it's an interesting time. Do you, how much of a sense do you have that there's sort of a wave coming in favor of school choice? There clearly is a huge wave. So I'll just point to some objective polling that we've done. Uh, at the beginning of, it was around April of 2020, right at the outset of the kind of lockdowns and the closures of you know our schools due to the kind of COVID dynamics, we saw in our national polling that roughly 64% of Americans supported school choice, which is incredible. And it's always been yeah. that high. Fast forward to today, it's up to 72% in our national polling. And the biggest jump that we saw in the court, in the kind of sub-demographic group, uh, the biggest jump we saw was from uh, public school parents, meaning, again, it was like a 13-point jump alone just in that demographic, meaning uh, parents who are going, wait a minute, we don't like what we're seeing in our schools. You know, we want to be able to control the education funding that we're putting into this. We want to be able to control that for our sons and daughters. Why are we letting some distant bureaucrat tell me where I can or can't send my kid to school, right? And so that's where we're seeing already an objective wave there, along with 21 states over the course of the past year have expanded school choice, Arizona obviously going full pedal to the metal. I think there's this giant tsunami rather than a wave. It's a tsunami of change that's coming all across the country. And the politics of it are now completely reshuffled in that if you're a politician, before you had to say kind of like you were referencing with the teachers unions, you had to be in fear of the money and the power of the teachers unions. But now in this kind of fully democratized digital system of people can get information, people can actually get access to things in a way that isn't controlled by the big three networks, right? All of a sudden, parents can go, right. wait a minute, Arizona just passed a law giving all of us our you know $7,000 in state funding back. Yeah, I'm going to support a politician that supported that. Essentially, whoever jumps on this mantle of saying, I want to empower families with the freedom to choose the best education for their sons and daughters, they're going to be a winning politician. Whereas before, it's like, well, I got to go visit the power broker of the teachers unions because they control $3 billion in funding. Whereas now voters can just get easy access to knowing, wait, this politician wants to actually give me my education funding back. And the new dynamic is such that I, in a school choice kind of free system that we're envisioning, you don't have to go to your school board and yell at them for two hours saying, get your act together or stop teaching right. my kid things that I don't like. And then, oh, it, well, gosh, now I got to go vote against them in a random April election. Now parents can just vote with their feet, right? In a school choice system, you can say, I don't like what my administrator is doing or this particular principal is doing or this teacher. 
we're going to go to this private school or this charter school or this other public school right down the road with our, you know, our education funding. All of a sudden, the system's going to start to act more like a market economy, which rewards the best performers, right? Or the most accessible options versus I got to take my 99 theses list of grievances to the school board every year, which, oh, the teachers union also controls that because they are, that's where they're playing across these 13,000 different school boards across the country and just completely dominating them with political funding. (laughs) Well, it has been interesting to watch from the, the issue in San Francisco where school board members were voted out. I mean, you're talking about one of the most liberal school districts on the planet. And they saw that these, these school board members were more concerned with renaming schools than they were with getting their kids back in the classrooms. It's, it's those something like that, that can open your eyes when it's your kid and you learn about what they're being taught and you don't necessarily agree with it. um, It's really interesting. It's, it's really interesting. Final thing for you, and and maybe this is not in your purview, and tell me if it's not, because I don't want to put you on the spot here. We hear about textbooks, um, banning books, whitewashing history, yada, yada, yada. It, how political is that part of this structure? In other words, we know that in Florida... The DeSantis administration saw some books they didn't like in their public schools. Some of them ended up going back in. Many of them came out. You have accusations of textbook companies representing only one point of view, not covering a lot of history. How much of this is in your purview? What, what What are your thoughts on this sort of pushback on the education system? So just my general thoughts on... It kind of there's a if we're talking about real like tactical solutions to fixing our education system, um, this is where school choice is really the answer. So in a system where like the government isn't basically the single owner, operator and funder of 90 ish percent of the schools, when you have a system like that, you're always going to have people kind of pushing these solutions that say we need to ban X, Y, and Z, or we need to reform the standards, right? That was a huge debate 10 plus years ago with Common Core and you name it. In a school choice system that says we're going to fund the students, not the system, so that parents have full kind of control over all these dynamics, you really almost don't even need to be talking about these sorts of curriculum bans because it gets really clunky trying to either ban a certain idea, right? Because it's never going to get fully implemented. And even in the current public school system that we generally have all across the country, Teachers are kind of fully autonomous within that, right? So you may be able to change the standards, but on a day-to-day basis, that a teacher can kind of come up with their own lesson plan or teach whatever they want. But if you're unable to vote with your feet because, well, I can't afford to move or I can't afford private school tuition, you're necessarily going to have these messy, weird political battles. Whereas in the choice system, parents can freely choose the model that fits them. And actually, Michelle, this is kind of what most of the really best performing and best developed education systems in the country are doing where they are fully funding the student and they may have like 13 different types of public schools that they're funding in Denmark and Sweden and you name it that allow parents to just choose whatever is the best model for their kid because I think any parent with more than one kid knows they all have different learning styles right they all kind of uh, you know really do well in a Montessori versus a district public versus a private you know all of these things you can't even really debate in America because we've just held on to this antiquated system from the 1800s, essentially. And where it really gets pernicious and where I think the political battles, um, these are all, in some ways, they're important battles and they will always be kind of at the forefront of our education discussion. Like, what are we teaching our kids? What are we doing about sex education and curriculum? I mean, these have been battles have been raging for hundreds of years. It's almost nothing new. But where it really gets just jaw dropping and where it's really for us in the in the school choice movement, where we've been at this for, you know, 30 years talking about these issues of our reading and literacy rates are unbelievably low. Yeah. Our math scores are terrible. China and all of the rest of the world, they're just kicking our butts. And even in 1983, you may have remembered this seminal report that came out. Uh, called A Nation at Risk, which in 1983, when things were a little bit better in terms of some of our education performance metrics, um, in 1983, we had this kind of line in this report that said, if a foreign power were to impose upon us this type of education system we have with the results it's getting, we would view it as an act of war. 
fast forward 40 years now and it's even worse, right? And we're not really talking about that. We're not talking about like some of these, you know, city by city statistics of just how devastating and generationally poverty inducing statistics that we've had. And I mean, Baltimore is a one of the worst examples that I point to, Michelle, there was um, a report in 2017 that came out. They basically kind of did a, a high school exit exam uh, on math for all of the high school seniors. Michelle, what would you guess was the percentage of students that passed that test? Oh, uh, 30. 30. So you were close. It was 14. Oh, But oh. Michelle, it actually, it wasn't 14%. It was 14 total students across all of the high school seniors in the city of Baltimore. That is the type and the depth of the crisis that we're talking about here, right? Because even the statistic you just said, which is 30%, that's kind of the national average, 38% proficiency rates across our public schools. And again, we're not talking about what that's done to communities for generations where we basically institutionalize poverty with our public education system. And people say, okay, then lower the standards because clearly our standards right. are too high and you want to say- Do away with the standards even, right? Or do That's away the with new the discussion. What? <laughs> yeah, do away with standards. And so, you know, again, the soft bigotry of low expectations, it makes me sick to my stomach. And uh, I, I just keep fighting the good fight. I believe this is a good fight. I, I, I want every kid, every kid- in this nation to succeed and to know that they've got loads of potential to be discovered and explored. And uh, I, I'd like to give every parent the hope that their kid can do better than they did. You know, that's, that's what it's supposed to be about. Tommy Schultz is the CEO of the American Federation for Children. Uh, And the website is Tommy. Federation for children.org. It's a little long. We're changing it soon, but (laughs) <laughs> Federation for Children, F-O-R, children.org. All right. Or you can it, follow us on School Choice Media at School Choice Now. That's our handle all across uh, all the social platforms. At School Choice Now. There you go. Tommy, it's been a pleasure and very informative and uh, uh, along with the hope, a little bit of despair. But I'm, I'm going to hang on to the hope because it, it does seem like this wave, it, 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 things are changing. Things are, yeah, things are changing in a really good way. And thank you for having me on. Thank you for being a part of this fight. Yep. I'm, I'm right there with you. Tommy Schultz. Thanks so much. This has been Sideline Sanity. I'm Michelle Tafoya. We'll see you next time. So with the economy, the way that it is, which is not great, makes you think about what is smart investing these days? I was given a gift of gold by my mom. My husband and I were gifted some gold for a wedding anniversary and we're really grateful. And I am really grateful to Charles Thorngren, who grow, who joins us now from Legacy Precious Metals, a sponsor of Sideline Sanity. Charles, we appreciate you so much. You know, we're hearing more and more about how inflation ain't transitory after all, and it may be here a while. And you know, food shelves are getting, the lines are longer. It, this is really, it's not the America I grew up in and it's, it's worrying a lot of people. So if if someone's thinking about investing, what do you tell them? You you know, it's, it's an interesting conversation. Investing nowadays, uh, we want to go back to kind of the basics really where diversification has always been key. And, and we hear it, we've been told it ad nauseum, you know, diversify, diversify, and then everyone puts all their money in the stock market and wonders <laughs> why when there's a pullback, they're in trouble. Diversity means asset class diversity as well. You know, some real estate, um, some precious metals. These are the things that gives your portfolio the legs to stand through all the storms that will happen financially. And, and, and we know that they happen. They happen continuously and they recur. So that's what diversity is truly meant to do. And that's why people used to talk about diversity. So when people see the value of the dollar declining or they see inflation, um, how do you get the average person like me to understand that gold can still be appreciating or that gold can protect right. against that stuff? How, how does that make sense for people? You know, the, the easiest way to look at it is if you look at gold, right? Gold is the anti-dollar investment. As a dollar gets weaker, gold gets stronger. And we know that because... It takes more dollars to buy that gold, just like cars cost more now, right? Um, 
Anytime you have inflation, the item that you're buying costs more. The difference with gold is that it doesn't devalue. It's considered a alternative currency. Basically, when you say that I don't have complete faith that this financial system is not built on a house of cards, or I don't have complete faith in, in what the current Fed is doing to fight inflation, this is where gold comes in. And this is where we see people increase their amount of gold because a diversified portfolio should have some gold regardless. We need to remember that the United States Fed says 2 to 3% inflation is ideal. So that means for the average saver, if your retirement account's invested and it's based in dollars, that you're going to lose 60% of your purchasing power to inflation by the time you're ready to retire. And that's under the best of terms. And now we can talk about the, oh, it's transitory. Oh, no, maybe I was wrong. Um, maybe we need to do half basis points every month for the rest of the year and then see where it's at next year. These are scary things that mm -hmm. the experts are trying to tell us that maybe we didn't have it right. And this is why people have gold. And this is why it offers that protection. It's interesting. Uh, I, you know, I think people think, well, if I'm investing in gold, do I actually possess the gold in, you know, I have it in a safe. Do I have, how do you get gold? How do you keep gold? Right. And, and physical gold. I mean, this is what we do. So yes, if you're buying it outside of an IRA, we can deliver it right to your home and you can put it in your own safe. You can put it in your safety deposit box. If you don't feel comfortable with that, we do offer storage for our clients as well. Okay. So there's lots of options. Uh, in the IRA, it's stored for you, just like your IRA account. You don't have access to those stocks. So if you were to take funds from your IRA, you could make that investment and you'd have the retirement account invested in the precious metals as well. And it would be handled just like every other IRA account. That's really interesting. And, and now I'm going to ask you a tough one, and I hope you'll forgive me, but I'm just going to be candid uh, and, and ask what I think might be coming to people's minds. Sure. If the experts in Washington are making all these mistakes or they were wrong about inflation, then they're going to look at you and say, hey, Charles, why should I trust what you're telling me and why Legacy Precious Metals is the place to go. I'm, I'm asking this in an honest sure. way because I because I I know you want to be transparent about this stuff. So how would you Absolutely. answer that? You know, it really is. Is I'm not a politician. Um, <laughs> I have no desire to be a politician. I like what I do. Right. I help people prepare their finances. I help people with their retirements. I help people set up their funds so that their children and their grandchildren have something that's there. This is what I do. This is what I do for uh, enjoyment. Um, uh, very big in economics. Um, um, but metals is that thing that it's an alternative asset, right? When I was a stockbroker 30 plus years ago, it was unique kind of then. And then everybody was a stockbroker and everyone had stocks and there was nothing different. There was no protection. Everyone said the same thing. To me, it didn't make sense for everyone to be doing the same thing. If we all do the same thing, then we all fall together. And we know that if you follow the government's direction, you're buying into whatever they want to sell you. Now, it used to be politics was a little different. We've gotten into a place where we can't say that anymore. It's not always for the people. It's We see that. We see that what they're doing with the economy itself. We know that we have to have something else. And this is why we do what we do here at Legacy. And my history is is why people should, you know, give us a call, chat with us and see if it makes sense for them. Last thing I want to ask you about is I remember 2008 and I know a lot of people mm -hmm. do. And, it, 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 you know, that was a crash and there have been other crashes. But why is it that when the economy crashes, gold has historically risen. I know you said it's sort of the anti-dollar. Right. Is there a way in layman's terms to explain why that happens? It's it's the safe place, right? When, when there's so much risk out there and people are losing so much money, they just want safety. Mm -hmm. So l let's look at inflation. We know right now we're running close to eight and a half percent. We can dig some real numbers out there and we can debate that, but We'll just take that number as it is. We'll use 8%. That means everything costs you 8% more this year. 
than it did last year. And we know it's going to go higher because the Fed's already promised us a lot more interest rate raises, right, to fight inflation. But we know it's not enough. When they say things like, we'll try to raise half a basis point five times over the next six months and see where the economy's at next year, that in itself lets you know you need to find something that doesn't put your livelihood in their hands. They're, they're juggling an economy and the stock market, and it was never meant to be that way. So you have to protect yourself. And this is where gold comes in because it is the anti-dollar. The weaker the dollar gets, the stronger gold gets. And, you know, 2008, I remember after it happened, um, the people that would call and try to salvage their retirement accounts. And it was a very devastating time. People would call and they would be crying that they can't retire now. They have to continue to work. They're 67 years old and their plans are gone because they lost half their value. And that's devastating. You know, but this is where those who were involved in gold, they saw gold almost double in price. It offset the losses. It offset the losses. So again, Charles is not suggesting that you put all your money in one place, no. that not even gold, but diversify your assets and precious metals is a good way to go. And legacy precious metals is the only company I trust when I talk about and do my investing in gold and silver, and you can contact them as well legacypminvestments.com legacypminvestments.com I don't know why you would waste another minute thinking about it just talk to them I mean just ask them see what your situation can can manage and handle and might require and just get some answers uh, Charles I appreciate your time thanks for this it's been very educational my pleasure my pleasure thank you Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it and i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com